You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi, everybody. I'm Keith McDaniel, and I am the founder and director of the Knoxville Film Festival, uh, which is celebrating 18 years uh, this September. Uh, I am also a documentary filmmaker, and I have been for the last 25 years or so. Um, I've made 16 um, historical documentaries, uh, mainly about events, people, and places in, in East Tennessee, um, some of the uh, films that people may have seen uh, that have had kind of a broad reach are A Secret City, The Oak Ridge Story, a documentary about the history of, of Oak Ridge and, and its role in the Manhattan Project during World War II, and another film that has aired um, nationally on PBS over the years is called The Clinton Twelve. Uh, I'm particularly proud of the Clinton 12. It tells the story of the integration of Clinton High School in 1956. Uh, It was the first school uh, to be integrated as a result of a court order after the uh, Brown versus the Board of Education Supreme Court decision. Um, It uh, has uh, been distributed throughout the state, uh, through schools, and um, I'm very, very very proud of that. It actually won... Um, Best Documentary, uh, Audience Award Best Documentary at the 2000, I believe it was seven, Nashville Film Festival. And also that year it received the first uh, Nashville Public Television Human Spirit Award. Uh, I am currently uh, on staff at Carson Newman University in Jefferson City, Tennessee. I work in the marketing department as special projects manager and video producer I'm also an adjunct faculty there on their film uh, program. And um, I just finished a, a couple of uh, documentaries in the last year, uh, one on for the town of Farragut that uh, tells the story and celebrates their 40th uh, anniversary of incorporation and also one for Roan State Community College uh, and uh, celebrating their 50th year of service to, to the area. So I'm Glad to be with you today. Thank you so much. Keith McDaniel, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. You know, I've wanted to know so much more about how film festivals work and what the film community is like in East Tennessee, uh, simply because uh, I kind of view it as like uh, it has the potential to be like the Telluride of the South because it's this small little town. It's a mountain town. And nestled in there are all these super creative people that I end up meeting. They transfer from Knoxville to Nashville. And, and mm-hmm. it's like, well, what's going on down there? And here we have the man with the plan, Keith McDaniel, on the, on the podcast. Let me give the audience a little bit more of a background on who you are. I'm going to read a little bit from your bio. And as I always okay. say, this is the Internet. So if anything's wrong, feel free to correct me. <laughs> <laughs> Keith McDaniel founded the Secret City Film Festival in Oak Ridge, Tennessee in 2004 in celebration of the art of independent cinema. 
Nine years later, the festival was moved to Knoxville and rebranded as the Knoxville Film Festival, held at Knoxville's Art House Theater, the Regal Downtown West Cinema 8. Keith McDaniel has written and directed 12 films on various historical topics, ranging from Oak Ridge and the Manhattan Project to his most recent feature, A History of Concord and Farragut. As the founder of Knoxville Film Festival, McDaniel successfully draws public attention to the region's history while promoting the documentation of this history through the popular event. And how was that? I know that I thought you said 16, the bio said 12, 16. Yeah, right. I think that, that bio is a little old. I've yeah. done I've done a few since then. <laughs> Good so, deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, here I think that's an inspiration to those listening. Like you're you're working, you're still you're still doing your thing with the films. And I, I want to start back with the the front part of that bio, the starting of the Secret City Film Festival. That's uh a title I understand because I live here, but for this worldwide mm-hmm. audience, I think it's a really awesome sounding festival name. I mean, it's very intriguing secret city film festival in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. So the question is why Oak Ridge? Did you, did you grow up there? What, what, why pick that as a location? To start Actually I live in Oak Ridge. Um, oh. Oak Ridge is about 30 minutes from Knoxville. Uh, it is the, uh, it was one of America's secret cities during world war two. Um, it, uh, you know, the it, when people hear about um, the Manhattan Project and the building of the atomic bomb, they uh, most of the time they know about Los Alamos and, and uh, uh, New Mexico. And that's where they actually built the physical container for the bomb. Uh, most people don't know that the Manhattan Project, the bulk of the, the work that was done in the Manhattan Project was done in Oak Ridge. And Oak Ridge was the site where they enriched the uranium, which was the fissile core of the atomic bomb. It was the thing that made the bomb go boom. And um, they uh, they spent um, several years figuring out a way to extract the enriched uranium from uranium ore and were able to do that successfully. So I grew up actually in Kingston, Tennessee, which is uh, less than 15 miles away. So I've been a part of Oak Ridge, you know, my whole life. And when my wife and I got married about 30 years ago, we actually um, were doing plays together. Uh, she's an actress. I'm an actor uh, of some sort. And um, so we met in theater. And once we decided to get married, we decided to settle into Oak Ridge because we were doing plays at the Oak Ridge Playhouse. And it would just be much more convenient for us uh, to do that. So uh, so when the marketing part of the city of Oak Ridge uh, decided a, a number of years ago to to, you know, to in, to embrace this this heritage tourism uh, to have tourists come and learn about the history of Oak Ridge, they came up um, uh, with the idea of calling it the secret city and which it was it was you know it was one of during world war ii oak ridge was the fifth largest city in the state and the governor of tennessee didn't even know it existed it was <laughs> truly a secret city it was a big secret so so i decided to um when i made my first big documentary about oak ridge i called it secret city the oak ridge story my um uh, and I started my own company uh, to produce films, and I called it Secret City Films. 
And so it was just a natural thing for me to start a film festival in Oak Ridge um, and call it the Secret City Film Festival. It was just it was just a natural thing. The the reason and, and it's an interesting story about how I started the festival. The um, we had a festival in Knoxville called Valley Fest, mm. and uh, it had it had operated for about six years. And actually, it was it was uh, they held it at the Regal Downtown West Cinema Eight, where now I hold the Knoxville Film Festival, the Art House right. uh, Cinema in Knoxville. And um, it had I, I was thinking about starting my own film festival, and um, it just so happened that the year I decided that I was really going to take the plunge and start this film festival, Valley Fest decided not. They decided to go out of business. They decided. Uh, for whatever reason, that they weren't going to do it anymore. So it was a really natural progression for me to kind of pick up where they left off. And I did. I had it in Oak Ridge, and we called it the Secret City Film Festival. And and it was in Oak Ridge for, I think, about eight or nine years before I moved to Knoxville. Oak Ridge as a city, historically, I would say, is tied to maybe the most important project in human history, if you think about the potential nuclear weapons have for eradicating human life on the planet mm-hmm. and that, and that, you know, the, the barrier to that is human judgment, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which exactly. Is, which is terrifying to think about on its own. So I imagine that, that Oak Ridge is sort of crawling with investigators and documentarians all the time. I mean, is, was that was that your experience? No, not really. Um, it was. It, it really wasn't. Um, the The thing about Oak Ridge is people know it. Uh, people who know about it know that it was where we created, you know, the core, the fissile material for the atomic bomb. But so much more happened in Oak Ridge afterwards. Um, it was, you know, it was the birthplace of nuclear medicine. You know, mm-hmm. everybody knows someone that has gone to the hospital and had a had, you know, a nuclear medicine test. Well, that was that was developed here in Oak Ridge. And there's so many, many other great benefits to our society and to the world that have come from the research done in Oak Ridge. On the other hand, it is the place that has kept the uh, our nuclear stockpile um, fully functional. Um, it, it's just, it's just, it, you have these two sides of this coin. Um, and when I did, when I did the, um, when I did my first documentary, uh, Secret City, the Oak Ridge story, I've done six on Oak Ridge history, various mm-hmm. aspects of Oak Ridge, but the first big one, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview over a hundred people and probably 80 of those were original Oak Ridgers, which meant they came here in their early tw- in their late teens and early twenties, uh, in 1943, 44, mm-hmm. and 45, to work on the project. And and when I did the when I did the interview, I would always kind of you know go through my process, and then I would ask them, "Now that you know what you were a part of, how do you feel about it?" <laughs> Great and question. In, and invariably, they would always feel they would always say something to the effect. Uh, I remember one particular gentleman, he kind of uh, said it very well. He said, it was a terrible thing, 
He said it was a horrible thing. He said, but we were working to end the world's worst war ever in the history of, of mankind. And um, we had a job to do, and I'm glad we did it well. Mm-hmm. So there was, uh, there was a, lot of, a lot of mixed emotions and mixed feelings about it. And when I went on a local radio station, I went on the local NPR station when the film came out and was doing a live call-in talk show and had some guy call up and just say, how can you celebrate building a bomb that killed so many people and that caused so much destruction? And I said, that's not what my movie is about. My film is about um, uh, people coming together to do something together to end a war that killed 62 million people worldwide. Um, It was about their patriotic duty and their ability to keep everything secret uh, at that time, which would never happen today. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a celebration of the people who did something um, uh, collaboratively to, to help, to help mankind. Right. So, and that, and that's really what the, the story of Oak Ridge um, that's the kind of story that I want to tell about Oak Ridge. We, we acknowledge the fact that um, of the destructiveness of, of that weapon. Um, but we also talk about the, the great things, the great science, the great technology, the great innovation that has come from, from that work, that original work over the past 70 years or so. Yeah, and and there was another. It was interesting. There, you ask about an, a, another documentary. Other documentary filmmakers. There have been documentaries made about Oak Ridge. Right. Um, the History Channel's been here a number of times, and other people have done other things. Uh, but really, my first the the first film that I did that told that story was the first really comprehensive um, telling of that story in a film. There have been books that had been made from it. But, um, but it was the first really, because like I said, most of the, most of the, the films, most of the things that were done were about Los Alamos and they kind of, they mentioned Oak Ridge, but they didn't talk, you know, very much about it. So this was about, this was the Oak Ridge story. This is what the Oak Ridge story did. Right. There was another, there was another documentary filmmaker in town for a while who actually (laughs) it's, it's really funny uh, he did. He was a he was a he was a minister, and he did uh, mm. several documentaries on on theologians and and things such as that. But he and I are close to the same age. Uh, I'm a little bit older than him. Um, he uh, he and I share the same birthday. Wow! And he and I sort of look like each other. <laughs> so so when we would go into Staples. They would always confuse us for the other one, but uh, but no, there's not there's there's been some films made, but not not as many as you would think. And right. also the powers that be, um, I had really good cooperation with the plants and with the government contractors and things such as that. But and, and they uh, they of course themselves do a lot of uh, films and have done a lot of films about the history and and the things that are done here, but. Uh, but no, I'm. I think I'm about the only one left now. Well, well I think. Ridge. Well, I think there's a. Thank you for that. I, I think there. There's all these stories and films on the Manhattan Project. You know, mm-hmm. I learned about it from reading an Oppenheimer book or a yep. book about Oppenheimer. Right. The. Uh, but but there are very few that are specific 
to Oak Ridge. And that, mm-hmm. that's the, that's the differentiator. Yeah. Uh, I think also it's easy to, to retrospectively look back and say, Oh, these people, you know, they, they did a bad thing. How could you? And uh, it makes me think of the interviewees or some of the archival footage you pulled from the Clinton 12, which we'll talk about here in a minute, your other documentary. Mm-hmm. And I think about all those people who interviewed them uh, or got in an interview and really said some things that they, if, if they had another chance, if they knew which direction the world was going to go in, mm-hmm. they would, they would take all those comments back and they probably would have a different tack completely. Uh, but in the moment, <clears throat> you're living in the present. You're living in the current site, guys. And that's why archival footage is so powerful, because you get a sense of the um, the attitude or attitudes that existed in a given moment in time. Yeah. And so it's very yeah, difficult mean, for us to go back and be retrospectively judgmental um, and, and sort of measure them by our current yardstick. But um Yeah. I wanted to go back a little further with you, even before Secret City, because I I, I want to know how did you get involved in this? I, you know, where does your passion uh, for film and and your creative fire for acting and document uh, documentaries come from, and history come from? Did were your parents involved in the arts? No, actually, um, you know, I don't know where it came from. Um, <laughs> my, to be quite honest, my parents. Um, my parents were just very supportive of me. I mean, you know, they were the kind of parents that said, you know, you can do whatever you want to. And I actually believed them. Uh, so, I, but when I was growing up, um, I was a singer. Oh. Um, yeah, I was a, I was a singer. I, uh, I kind of discovered it in high school and, um, your, some of your national, uh, audience will appreciate this. Um, is I grew up in church in Kingston and at First Baptist Church in Kingston and, and my youth director, music and youth director at the time, he brought in this group from Belmont College uh, a couple of three years in a row called the Belmont Reasons. And they were kind of a PR group. They were uh, eight singers in a band mm-hmm. and uh, they had like their pop show that they did popular music. And then they had their church show where they would come in and do you know, church music. And they came, um, like I said, they came to our church a number of times and we just, we just all thought they were rock stars. I mean, you know, (laughs) we, we really did. And so the, um, I was getting ready. It was my senior year of high school. I had my own little band and we, you know, we did music and, and, um, I played guitar and my senior year of high school and the, the music director said, hey, they're having auditions for the Belmont Reasons in Nashville. And would you be interested in auditioning? And I said, sure. So he drove me to Nashville and I auditioned uh, along with about 100 other people. And um, it's a long story, which I won't go into. But eventually uh, I was selected. They had one opening that year. And I was selected to fill that opening. So I ended up going to Nashville to Belmont College. It was Belmont College at that point. Mm -hmm. And um, and I sang with the Belmont Reasons for a year and a half and um, studied music business. And uh, I was in the music business program and and was there on a scholarship is the only way I could afford to go to Belmont. But um, so that's that's kind of where it started. I wanted I wanted to be a singer. But. 
you know, when I went there, I was 17. I'd never been anywhere. I was green. Yeah. You know, the big, the big, the bright lights of the big city just kind of ate me alive. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up coming back to, to East Tennessee and um, got involved in theater um, at the local community college. Uh, ended up working some in radio. Um, did, did you go to and, theater because it gave you the opportunity to sing? Yeah, I did. As a matter of fact, the first show that I ever did, it was either the first or second show. Um, the first two shows that I ever did was a mus- were musicals. Mm. And um, uh, so it was it was a great opportunity for, for me to perform. And um, I, uh, I ended up working at a local radio station, uh, finally ended up going uh, back to college uh, to finish my degree at Carson Newman, where I work today, and got my bachelor's degree in theater and uh, communications in theater and ended up working in the communications business for a while. I worked as a newspaper reporter and there's a, there's, there's a thread to all this that I'll get to in a minute. <laughs> um, I worked as a newspaper reporter and this was in the mid eighties. And, and this was about the time personal computers were coming on board and Macs were coming out and, mm-hmm. and all these little newspapers were transitioning from uh from actual physically pasting the story on the page to doing it on the computer. And I kind of took to it. So I kind of became a, a, a designer, a graphic designer, and was really interested in that. And I bought my first Mac, I think, when I, in 1986, 87, something mm-hmm. like that. But, um, but anyway, so, so I was involved in, in these various, you know, artistic endeavors. Um, and, Eventually, I I was working for a company doing video uh, work. Um, I had uh, I had become a script writer during that time for the uh, Sunday School Board out of Nashville. They had a TV network, so I wrote like over a hundred TV scripts for them. Wow! And um, uh, over the course of several years, and so <clears throat> so when I was working for this company, local company that that basically did educational programming. Uh, they actually did prep for the ACT test. And so I did video, I did graphic design, I did all these kinds of things. And my boss came to me and said, we grew up together, my, the guy who owned the company. And he said, I would like for you to do a documentary on the history of our county. It had a very rich history. And I was like, I don't know anything about documentary <laughs> filmmaking. I've never thought about making a documentary before. I said, I yeah. know I kind of like to watch Ken Burns films, but that was about it. So I did. I, I spent about a year uh, working with a scriptwriter, and I made this documentary um, on the history of Roan County, Tennessee. And we had a big premiere, and 500 people showed up. And to let you know how long ago it was, it came out on VHS tape. It didn't come out. <laughs> DVDs were around, but they weren't very popular. Um, and, you know, so it was, and, and, and listen, I'm going to be honest with you. It was horrible. It was a terrible film. It was, it was obvious I had no idea what I was doing. Well, you told your boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I said, <laughs> I you know, it's terrible. Um as a matter of fact, I've got a friend who a couple of years ago, he said, guess what I found on eBay? And I said, what's that? He says, I found a copy of your first film on VHS tape. 
And I said, well, how much did it sell for? He says, I think it was 99 cents. And I was like, well, somebody got ripped off because it wasn't worth 99 cents. <laughs> but what happened was I fell in love with the process. Right. Um, I was in my late 30s. Uh, I was newly married. Um, I went home and told my wife that um, that I, I think I've decided to become a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> and uh, because she had that artistic bent as well, she kind of understood where I was coming from. So that was kind of where I, I decided, that was uh, 25 years ago, and that was where I decided that I wanted to to really kind of pursue that as a career. And 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 I did. So well, that made uh, me think, because he, there's a couple of stories uh, that I've read about you where that kind of went just like that, where you, so, where you just walk up to your wife and say, I think I want to start a film festival. Mm-hmm. I think I want to be a film. And, and I just started thinking, well, do you have the right wife or does everyone else have the wrong wife? Well, you know, she, <laughs> like I said, she's, she's it's, always it's, it's been an very amazing supportive. benefit for you to just, just to say, I think I've had a life change. I've got, I'm going to do something really big here. And well, she'd be on know, board, you know? Well, the thing about it is my wife and I, we didn't, Gosh, we didn't get married. I didn't get married until I was almost, I was a month away from my 35th birthday. Mm -hmm. She was 28. Neither one of us had ever been married before. Uh, So we were kind of settled. I mean, we were kind of grown up and and kind of set in our ways. And I think we both kind of knew what we were getting into. Um, And, Mm -hmm. uh, but she's, she's, like I said, she's an artistic person and she understands that artistic uh, bent that I have and, and that sometimes I come up with schemes and crazy ideas and, <laughs> and, and, and it kind of, go, it all goes back to that. What I said earlier about my parents saying, you can do whatever you want to, if you put your mind to it. And I just had to, the audacity to believe them that they were correct. And, uh, yep. I've tried things, I've done things that, uh, that didn't work out, you know, just like everybody <laughs> else. But, um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a good, it, like I said, we've been married almost 30 years. We have, Two, you know, children that are in college. One's in uh, getting his master's at UT, and the other one's in college. And and uh, so, um, you know, we've we've got a we've got a good family and a good home. And she's been very supportive. I'm not saying Absolutely. she hadn't rolled her eyes plenty of times. <laughs> she has, and she, and she probably had the right to do so. <laughs> but um, but she's always been very supportive of my crazy ideas. Well, I think what you mentioned before is a big part of it. Um, here in the South, there's a lot of pressure to get married as soon as you're out of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and which, you know, maybe those listening around the world may not relate to, maybe there are other places that would relate to it in terms of just sort of, uh, having a dowry system maybe, or, or a system where, where you, where it's an arranged marriage and, and that happens right away. But I think the key to, to the way you guys work is, Hey, you've never been married before, but you knew who you were. When mm-hmm. you got together, yep. and so it, it wasn't like um, you're having a life change. This is like who you've always been and who she's always been, and that's who you met each other as. When, whereas when you get married when you're 20, and then you just then you figure out who you are by the time you're 35. Yeah. Then you come and have that conversation. It feels like a bait and switch. Yeah, exactly. To, to your and significant other. I always say I don't think it should be legal for anybody to get married before 25 anyway. So <laughs> but that's just that's just the old man and me talking. But, uh, uh, there's a lot of wisdom in it uh, for, uh-huh. for sure. Um, 
As a director of an independent film festival, what do you find are the major challenges and, and significant rewards of conducting a festival? You know, when I started the film festival, and this is, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about. Um, I had been to one film festival in my life when I decided <laughs> to start mine. <laughs> so it was kind of like I didn't, once again, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and I remember that first film, I, I knew I needed to have judges to judge the submissions. And uh, uh, so I picked people that I knew, friends of mine. And um, I had this one judge, he was actually my pastor of my church. Yeah. And he loved movies. And, and so I gave him these short films and he had to write up his notes and and one of the one of the notes that he gave back to me was, and I was a little surprised at it, was this watching this film was a complete and total waste of my time. No one should ever have to watch this. <laughs> and um, so, but that year, you know, I don't know how many films, and it was really for the local film community, the Knoxville film community. Right. Um, uh, it it. It was, I mean, yeah, I think I had 40 films submitted and I showed all of them and they probably weren't worth very much, to be quite honest. Um, but over the years, I was able to to learn more about how to how to put on a film festival. And and we we talked a little bit about the Clinton 12 earlier um, that came out in 2006 mm -hmm. and. I knew that I wanted to, um, because it was a great story that had never really been told very well. Um, I was fortunate enough to have, uh, to get James Earl Jones to narrate it. I got to fly to New York and direct James Earl Jones for an afternoon, which is one of those experiences that you'll never forget. I'll never forget. Right. Um, and uh, so I decided that the, the way to, to get distribution on that was to do the film festival circuit. So for about 18 months after it came out in August of 2006, uh, I uh, submitted it to film festivals across the country. And in the course of about 12 months, I attended 35-ish film festivals across the country. That's a lot. That was a lot. I was gone, just seemed like every weekend. And the, um, but the great thing about it is I call it my film festival school. Uh, yeah. I got to go and see the big film festivals, the small film festivals, um, you know, the film festivals where you go, you start going into town and you lose sales service. And the, and the fancy hotel was the, you know, Motel 6, you know, it was, it was that kind of place um, to the big places where they, they, you know, they, they flew me to Dallas first class to have the, the film screened at this wonderful venue. And, and so, so I was able to learn things about the film festival business, uh, see things that I liked, things that I didn't like, things that worked for people, things that didn't work for people. And uh, I brought those back to Knoxville, I mean, to Oak Ridge, and uh, started incorporating several of those um, into, into my film festival. Um, if I had to pick one thing about whether or not a film festival is going to be successful or not, um, it is this, your local film community, like they say in politics, is your base. Mm. If you don't have your local film community on board, 
you are going to have a hard, hard time being successful. Um, and that's one of the things that I have really pushed on and incorporated over the years to make sure that the local film community, they not only filming, uh, feel included, but they feel engaged and empowered um, by the opportunities are, of participating in the film festival. So that's probably the most important thing that I've learned why, over the years. Why, why is that, Keith? Why, why, why won't it work if the local... Well, we're, we're, for example, Nashville, but you know, the Nashville Film Festival is huge. It's, Mm -hmm. they have people come, come in from all over the world. Um, Of course they have a, you know, they have a big budget and and staff and things such as that. Um, I don't have any of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I run the film festival basically by myself. I do have some help. I do have some volunteers, but I do it as a hobby. I call it a hobby that got out of hand (laughs) over the years. Um, but, you know, so I don't have a big budget. I don't have a big staff. Um, I do it kind of as a, as a labor of love. And I, I depend on other people to be in, enthusiastic about the film festival for it to be successful. So we do have people come in from out of town. We have filmmakers that come in from all across the country um, just about every year because we do show, we not only show our local, you know, feature our local filmmakers, but we also you know, show films from across the country. Um, and we have some some visitors that come in from other states uh, just for the film festival, uh, which is great. But the vast majority of our audience is the local film community. And the local film community in Knoxville is is rather unique. And I want to tell you just, just briefly of why that is. Most people know uh, Knoxville is a big television production center right. has been discovery for, channel yeah, yeah discovery channel you know jupiter entertainment which is you know it's 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 huge now all the you know all the the they call it murder porn in yeah. knoxville is <laughs> all the you know reenactment murder shows and many many of those are produced here in knoxville right so you do have a large contingent of television people that work in the industry full-time here in knoxville um and, you know, what do they do on the weekends? They they want to go out and make their own little film. Mm-hmm. So we we have a thriving independent film community here in Knoxville and have have for years. And this this the, the, the film festival is a way for them to to feel engaged and to have a have a way for them to show the work that they've been doing um, and the, and give them opportunities to do things that they maybe haven't thought of before. Um, so, uh, so it's very, very important to the film festival to engage those folks, to keep them interested, you know, as much as possible. Some of them, you know, they'll, they'll, I don't want to call it age out, but they'll, they will, uh, they will do it for a few years and then they'll move on to other things, which is fine. But we've always got new, new, younger aspiring filmmakers coming up. So, yeah. And, and the reason I thought about it too, it, it's, it's a fascinating point because, you know, you mentioned the Nashville Film Festival. It's sort of becoming an it festival, mm-hmm. quote unquote, an it festival. It's got a lot of international notoriety now. And I noticed in the last, I'd say, two years, I mean, it's hard to judge because we did the festival, you know, via Zoom, essentially, you know, online because of the pandemic. But 
Yeah. They have started to shift away from that local film community a little bit more than they used to. It used to be just like you described, like Mm -hmm. high engagement locally. Yep. And a few people coming from outside. Now it seems to have flipped a little bit. And I think locally uh, the filmmaking community here um, is enjoying it less and is Mm -hmm. is less engaged as the festival actually becomes bigger and less inclusive inclusive of their films. And there's two ways to look at it. Like, Hey, it means we need to make better independent films so that we can Mm -hmm. get into our own festival. Right. That's a very, you know, you could say proactive way of looking at it and, and maybe optimistic way of looking at it. And then there's a pessimistic way of looking at it. Like, you know what, if you want to do that, we're not going to support it. We're not going to come. We're not going to pay the fees. We're not going to be in a part of the association. And yep. And, and what, what the bad thing about that is, is that, you have the, the potential of killing the film community. And, and I think that's, I, I'm not sure, but I think that's probably part of the reason that the Valley Fest Film Festival uh, shut down. I, you know, we're in the South and we have a saying, uh, don't get too big for your britches. Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, and I think that's what happens sometimes is I think, um you know, you get something going and then you aspire to be bigger or to be more prestigious uh, or to attract bigger names. And you lose sight of the, you know, and we, we also have another saying that says, uh, dance with the one that brung you, you know, so you lose sight of the one that you came to the party with. Um, and that's the reason that I, I'm convinced as long as I'm doing it, uh, the Knoxville Film Festival will be a nice, small, regional film festival that really focuses on the filmmaker. Um, I don't aspire to be Nashville. I don't aspire to be, you know, a a big film festival. Um, I want it to be a really good film festival that celebrates the filmmaker, uh, whether those are local or whether those are, you know, national or international. Um, A few years ago, we had a filmmaker come in from Rome, Italy, yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he, he had a great time and it was a great festival for him. Um, so, so, you know, it, it is easy to, to, to dream big, uh, and to pursue those dreams. But as long as you don't forget the reason that you, the reason that you exist in the first place, I think you'll, I think you'll be fine. And, and I've always focused on, uh, the local, the local film community or the, or the film community from the, from the region, from the state. I love that. And you mentioned you moved to Knoxville. How, how did the move change the festival? Uh, I know you have the 18th year coming up yep. September of this year, the 16th through the 19th. I'd like to be there if you'll have me Sure, uh, absolutely. And, and, and my uh, partner in crime here, Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'd love to know how, how it changed and, and, um, how the festival well, grew over the years a little bit. Yeah. What happened was, um, like I said, the first seven, eight, nine years, uh, we had it in Oak Ridge, um, but we didn't have a home. We didn't have a permanent home. Uh, the, we, you know, Oak Ridge is a town of about 30,000 people. We have one multiplex movie theater. It's owned by <laughs> Cine, Cinemark. Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, it's 16 screens, something like that. It's, it's a nice, it's a nice place. But they weren't interested in hosting the uh, a film festival there. Um, 
So I was able to, for a few years, we had it at the Oak Ridge Community Playhouse, um, which is about a, which was about a 300, 350 seat theater, but we had to bring in all of our projection equipment and the screen and the sound system. Um, and then, and it was only one screen. Uh, and then we moved to a, um, to a church, which used to be a movie theater. And uh, we had it there for a few years, but it was the same kind of situation. It wasn't anything that we could really rely on. So one of the other great things about Knoxville is that it is the home of Regal Cinemas. It is the head, the headquarters of Regal Cinemas worldwide right. is located in Knoxville. So I had met some folks that worked at Regal, and, and I reached out to a, a friend of mine and said, I'm thinking about moving the, the film festival from Oak Ridge to Knoxville 20 minutes you know, down the road. Right. Uh, the reality was most of the people who came were from Knoxville anyway. Um, I had some folks from Oak Ridge that came, but you know most of most of my audience came from the Knoxville metro area, and um, they were very interested in me moving. Uh, and so we were able to work out a deal, and I moved um, Secret City to to the Regal Downtown West Cinema Eight, which is the Art House Cinema, um, for I think it was year number nine. That was the ninth year. I still kept it the Secret City Film Festival though. Right. Okay. Yeah. And um, so it was, it, it doubled my attendance. I mean, overnight that year, uh, we opened it up to two screens, I believe, instead of just one. Um, and uh, so it doubled my attendance. And I said, this is, this is going to be good. About the same time, I was approached by folks at Dogwood Arts. Yeah. And Dogwood Arts is a long established arts community, arts nonprofit in Knoxville that promotes all kinds of artistic endeavors and artistic events. And the executive director came to me and, and they wanted to buy me lunch and said, uh, we are thinking about adding a film component to the, all the things that we do. And they did about 16 or 17 different events every year. And we talked to Regal and Regal told us that, uh, First of all, you don't want to do a film festival because you lose money. You won't make any money. Secondly, it's a big pain in the butt. And thirdly, if you're determined to do this, you really ought to talk to Keith McDaniel because he's done it for the last 10 years. So um, so we did. We kind of got to know each other. And over the course of about six months, we hammered out an agreement um, that we would partner. I would still own the film festival. Um I run it as a part of my business, not as a nonprofit, mm -hmm. um, and uh, that we would partner in the administration of the film festival. They would take care of all the administrative details, sell the tickets, get the sponsorships, all those things. I would focus on the artistic and creative aspects of the film festival. And uh, so that lasted for about four years and then kind of um, they, de they decided that they didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Uh, I think just because they realized that Regal was right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you are not going to make any money and it is a big, huge pain in your rear end, yeah. you know, doing all that work. Um, so at the end of four years, and that's when we rebranded it as the Knoxville Film Festival. When we started, when I started that partnership with Dogwood, um, because it was in Knoxville, I planned on keeping it in Knoxville, and, and uh, I thought that would have more appeal to the region. 
uh, more name recognition. And and so after Dogwood decided to to not do it anymore, I uh, I said I, I have got to make a decision. Do I want to keep doing it? And it really grew with them, to be quite honest. It really grew. They did a good job in helping grow an audience for us. Right. And um, so it had gotten pretty big as far as the scope of the work that needed to be done. And I said, well, do I want to keep doing that or or, or is it time to quit? Mm-hmm. And um, I, had a, I had a group. I had a kind of a core group of local filmmakers and I had them over to my house and and I said, uh, you know, I said, this is kind of the inner circle. I want to ask you, you folks, what you think I should do. And uh, I had one of them look at me and said, man, he says, we've got to keep the film festival going, even if we have to go back to the church. Right. And uh, so I decided to, to, to keep it going and we'll see how things go, you know, year by year. And uh, and, you know, it, it, it wasn't as big. We didn't have as many. We didn't have as much budget. To, to spend on it. Um, and uh, we kind of not really downsized. We just eliminated some of the things that weren't absolutely necessary to make the film festival what it was. Um, Are you looking for new partners? Uh, you know, I've got, I've got, I've got sponsors that, um, that have supported me for years. I mean, absolutely for years to one degree or the other. And I'm very appreciative of those folks. Um, but I don't want to get back to where we're, you know, we're spending, you know, forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year just to put on the film festival, and that's what we were doing with Dogwood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's not necessary, it, you know. It's really not necessary. I'd love to have new sponsors, but uh, I don't want to get back to it being that big because I couldn't manage it myself. Right. So, um, so we focus on what's really important, and that is showing great films. Uh, engaging our audiences and engaging the filmmakers in the process of, of making the film. So, so it went along fine for a few years. And then of course, last year, the pandemic hit and us like everybody else had to kind of figure out what we were going to do. So we like most film festivals that I know of, we went completely online last year. Um, I made the choice and the decision uh, to make it free. So last year it was online it was free to anybody who wanted to watch it. Um, we didn't leave films up forever. Uh, we had a particular block of time that we would have a block of films that would be available to screen. Mm-hmm. And I ran the whole thing sitting at this desk where I'm sitting right now <laughs> over the course of the weekend. Um, and then we, you know, as things started picking back up, I reached out to Regal a few months ago and said, hey, I just wanted to kind of see where we are. Uh, as far as this year goes, and uh, they were in the process of reopening their theaters, and they gave us the green light to go ahead and have it in person again. So it will be in September of this year. Love it. What makes a film festival prestigious, and is there any film after all these years that stands out in your mind as the favorite, your favorite film or the most impactful to your attendees? I, I don't know what makes a film festival prestigious because I, we're not a film festival that has much prestige um, <laughs> in the eyes of those who consider things prestigious. Um, <laughs> to be quite honest, I would think, uh, but there's nothing fancy about what the Knoxville Film Festival is. Right. We have fun. We have a good time. Uh, we show great films. We, you know, we have a great network of people 
And uh, it's I, I, I liken it to our kind of our reunion every year. It's kind of like our big party for the local film community and for the film regional film community for us. Um, so, yeah, I can't answer what makes it prestigious. Um, what was the second part of that question? My favorite well, film. Yeah, your favorite film. Um, but, 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 I will, but I'll, I'll push back on you a little bit just to say, and I don't know if it's even a pushback, but do you know, because you've been to all these festivals. You've been mm-hmm. to you know, 50, 60 festivals probably at this point, maybe even more. When you, when you went to a festival that had prestige, what was it about it that made it prestigious? I remember going to, here, here's an example. Mm-hmm. Here's the, here's the, the upside and the downside. I remember going to, oh gosh, what's the name of it? It's a huge documentary festival in Durham, North Carolina, full frame. Mm-hmm. I remember going to full frame documentary film festival. And, um, I think I had to pay like $600 for <laughs> a full festival pass. Yeah. Um, over the course, that was the downside. The upside was I stood in line for 45 minutes talking to Rick Burns, who was Ken Burns's brother. Mm-hmm. Rick is a documentary filmmaker of his own right, who's wonderful. We stood in line together talking to be able to go in and watch an evening with Martin Scorsese. Wow. Um, that, to me, was prestige. That, that was a prestigious film festival. Um you know, we have had, uh, I've had guests come in over the years, actors, uh, people that have a connection to East Tennessee. Um, you know, we, we try to do those kinds of things as much as possible, but we're not going to have Martin Scorsese. You know, I can, <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Um, you know, uh, we, we've got great actors and... and uh, uh, you probably uh, could get Quentin Tarantino because you know, he's, he's from it, the area. We, we probably could if we wanted to. Yeah, maybe um, maybe the you know, last worked, thing he does. If we worked on it, yeah. yeah. So, but but you know, there's 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 we try to have people in that have done something maybe unique and something interesting that right. have a con- connection to the area. I remember a couple of years ago, one of the great things is I'm sure you've seen these uh, these videos and it's it's they become very very popular. Uh, it's a southern thing. They mm-hmm. do the sketch comedy out of Birmingham. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so I had uh, um, I had the four of the the cast and crew of It's a Southern Thing come up and do a workshop and do a, uh, you know, do a talk. And, and uh, so that was great. We've had uh, uh, Mitch Rouse, who is an actor, um, uh, director, writer uh, in Los Angeles, who's originally from Oak Ridge. He came in one year. That's cool. Um, uh, oh gosh, we've had, we've had other people. So, you know, if they've got some kind of connection, uh, that's great. And and we won't have that every year, but we, we will have that uh, sometimes. One of the great, well, I love uh, that you don't force it. I mean, that's great. No, no, no. Yeah. Oh, and, 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 and if we find a film that has someone associated with it or someone connected to it that will attend the film festival, that's even better. Um, one year, a few years ago, I had, um, we had this film, this great film that was shot in Kentucky called 23 Blast. Mm. And it was directed when when I got the submission, I noticed, I said, that name sure rings a bell. It was directed by Dylan Baker. And Dylan Baker is a well-known, well-known character actor. Google Dylan Baker and you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. Yeah. He's, he's been in everything. Um, 
he came in and I said, could you come in a few days earlier and we'll do some, some media, some uh, promotion. And he did. And, and it was great, you know, so it's not every year you have someone like that, that can come to your film festival. So, absolutely. so anyway, um, you know, there've been, like I said, the 23 blast was a great film. There've been lots of films over the years that, uh, <clears throat> that, um, you know, we've had, um, Is the, if you know, had to pick one though, that was your all time favorite of, of 18 years doing this. And the one that oh, just still sticks out to you still, I don't, I, I can't, it still pops in your brain when you're, uh, I, laying I down can't. to sleep. No, no, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, it's, there's so, there's so many of them and I've slept. I'm sure I would forget the one that was, had the most impact on me, but there have been lots and lots of films, um, that have, have, that audiences have loved. One of the things that I'm, and I want to make sure to get this in here. One of the things that I'm most proud of is we've, we've talked about engaging um, the local filmmaking community. Yes. 12, uh, I think it's 12 years ago now, I decided a way to do that was to create a competition. Mm-hmm. So I created the, uh, the seven day shootout it's sort of like the 48 hour film project in, in, in the fact that you would have teams of filmmakers that would be competing, except this, this, uh, project, the seven day shootout, they have seven days to make a four to seven minute narrative film. Um, we have a kickoff on a Wednesday night. They draw their genre out of a hat. So they don't know what their genre is. I give them elements that they have to include in the film and then they go off for seven days and make the film. Um, we've had not every year, uh, but most of the time I have to cap it at 30 teams. Otherwise you're going to have a whole evening of watching some great and not so great films because if they, if they meet the deadline and turn it in, it's shown at the film festival. Um, and that has been such a great launching pad for talent. Um, there are people that have started, uh, making films as a part of the seven day shootout who are now, you know, directors, um, that, that work in the industry. Um, I had, um, the, the, some of the local film executives, uh, from the, from the area come to watch the seven day shootout films, just looking for talent, uh, and come like up and say, your own version of a 48. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And, and, and it is probably the most popular thing that we do as far as audience goes, because these 30 teams go out and they make this film and then they get, you know, grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles <laughs> and friends all to come watch their movie on the big screen. Right. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a very, very popular part of what we do. It's really good for the bottom line for the film festival. Plus it really encourages uh, it encourages filmmakers to, to actually have a goal and to do something. Filmmakers are like a lot of artists in the fact that it's hard sometimes for them to be motivated, but when you give them a project and a, and a certain timeline to finish that project, they'll get motivated and get something done. So the seven day shootout is probably one of the, 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 the best things that I ever did as far as the film festival goes that, that yeah. engages and encourages most people. I think that's wonderful. I do. What uh, What are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career, and who did they come from? 
two best pieces of advice in my career. Uh, gosh. <laughs> you know, and this is, let's, let's, let's broaden that and say, what's some of the best advice I've been given in life? Okay. And uh, one of them, and, and I'm still, I'm still learning, you know, uh, even at my advanced age, <laughs> I'm still learning things. And I had a friend of mine just a few years ago. He said, he's, I had heard this before, but he really brought it to me. He says, never try to teach a pig to sing. <laughs> he said, because all that will do is frustrate you and irritate the pig. In other words, there's going to be people that you disagree with. And you will never convince them to see it your way. Mm-hmm. And just, so just move on. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's something, you know, that, that I've, that I still struggle with learning. Um, another thing is. Yeah, I'd be terrible at that one. I, yeah, I, yeah. I really want people to agree with me. Yeah, exactly. It seems, it seems irrational when they don't. <laughs> another, an, another another thing is, and I've learned this over the course of the last few years, um, and I'll, I'll give a little basis for this. Um, I just finished writing a book. Oh, and great. Congratulations. My book, and thank you, My it's coming out this summer, um, and it is about um, what I've done for my health over the last five years. Actually, yeah. a little over five years ago, I weighed 292 pounds, and I've lost 130 pounds. And um, I, I wrote this book to kind of tell my story about how I did it and why I did it and things such as that. And there's a section in the book that I talk about, and this could be this would had to do with my 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 weight, and my my change in lifestyle, um, but it talks about don't expect people to be as excited about things and have the same passion that you have. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you, sometimes you can't understand that so you're so excited and have such passion for this. You expect everyone else to have that same passion. They're not going to. Um, so sometimes you feel like you're out there on your own doing this uh, and filmmakers feel that way. Um, that's okay. Uh, it's your passion. You stick to your passion and you will be able to accomplish great things. And even if no one else is behind you, no one else is following you along uh, with that same passion. Um, you know, you have to live in the world and you have to get along with people and you have to, you can't live by yourself, but you've got to be the driving force in, in whatever, whatever it is you're doing that is creative. Um, yeah. So, so don't, don't, feel discouraged by being, being the one out front, you know, leading the charge because yeah. that's a lot of times that's what you've been called to do. That deeply resonates with me. Uh, just having spent my life in the creative realm and just, you know, wanting people to understand what I'm trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, and then when you don't get it, you're like, wait, what, yep. you know, but it's a great thing for anyone that's doing anything creative to, to remember. And, and by the way, I have that down as a note here about your weight loss. Mm-hmm. I had you losing 95 pounds. It's 130 pounds. 
and, yeah. and you did this in 2017. And, uh, so congratulations on that. That is thank you, uh, unbelievable. And just proof positive that, uh, once Keith McDaniel puts his mind to something, he's, he's, he's not going to stop. I understand you did this on a low carb sort of slow carb diet. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was not really keto. It wasn't that, um, it wasn't that low, but I, I kind of figured out what was going to work for me and sure enough, it, it did. And it's been a little over five years, uh, since I started this and, and, uh, it, it has, it really, really has changed my life. You I look mean, wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, you know, it's it, it, one of the great things that happened is that a couple of years after I, you know, lost a hundred pounds, I'd show up, see somebody and they would, are you okay? You know, are you, <laughs> are you sick? <laughs> Cause you look sick. And I'm like, that's the nicest thing anybody's ever said to me. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a, it's been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful thing. And, and, uh, um, something that I will probably embrace in some form or fashion for the rest of my life. Uh, uh, I know I've made my life longer from it. Yep. So, so anyway, you absolutely um, have, I, I think and, it's tremendous. Well, thank you. And one more thing, and this is something that I've always said, and I think this is particularly important for creatives. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes creatives are our ego is maybe a little bit, we're, well, let's say we're not quite as humble as we sh- should be sometimes. I know <laughs> right. I'm guilty of that. Um, but something to remember, one of my favorite Bible verses, and it goes to the, is something like, um, a prophet is without honor in his own land. Mm. So remember that, that, um, you know, the even even big stars, even big celebrities, when they get to the house, their wife makes them take out the trash. Mm-hmm. OK, you know, it's it's sometimes you have to to remember that even though you think you've got great ideas um, um, and you may have great ideas and you may be a visionary, um, but not everyone is going to see that. But you've still got to stick to your guns and work to create that vision. Uh, for what you want to accomplish and what you want to do. It may succeed. It may not, but you won't know until you try. So, uh, so anyway, thank you for that. I I really appreciate it. And I know this audience will as well. And I'm going to steal that. Well, I don't know if I can steal it. It's it's a Bible verse, but I'm certainly going to uh, deploy that in the future. I think that is just actually poetic in it's in it's wording. And, and powerful in its in its meaning. I, I promised uh, that we would get back to the Clinton Twelve, which yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed. I, I I deeply enjoyed it, and it was a piece of history that I you sort of passively know about it, but you don't mm-hmm. know what you should know about it, and that's where the documentary sort of fills the gaps. So it's an award winning documentary. It's historically powerful. It's compelling. And, and so uh, the story hadn't been really told. Mm-hmm. And so how did you come to know about the story? And would you tell us audience, because uh, uh, many people are listening from around the world. Mm-hmm. Can you let them know what the Clinton 12, who they are and what, what this story is all about? Sure. Uh, actually, I had uh, I grew up in, like I said, um, I live in I live in Oak Ridge, which is kind of halfway between Clinton, Tennessee, and Kingston, where I grew up. Uh, I'd never heard this story before in my life. 
Really? And wow. uh, n- didn't know anything about it and was living in Oak Ridge. I had just finished my first Oak Ridge film. And I get a call from uh, the city manager of Clinton who um, uh, he called me and said, listen, he said, uh, we want to meet with you. We, we, we need a documentary film made. So I went up and I met with the folks uh, in Clinton and they were getting ready to celebrate their 50th anniversary of the integration of Clinton High School. And uh, they had chosen to do three different things. One was to create a museum that told the story of the integration. Second was to do uh, bronze statues uh, of the Clinton 12. And I'll explain who the Clinton 12 are. And third was to do a documentary to tell to tell the story. And they had received some, some funding from the state and from the federal government to, to do these projects. Um, they... they they somebody had given them a copy of my uh, Secret City film, and and uh, um, they were impressed by that, and said, "Well, here's a local guy who 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 makes documentaries." So, so I learned about the story, and it was it was as I mentioned earlier, it was uh, Clinton High School um, in Clinton, Tennessee, small town, about four thousand people outside of Knoxville, 20, 30 minutes outside of Knoxville, as typical in that time in the mid century. Uh, about 10% of the population was African-American. Um, and each, each and, and I grew up in, this, in a town like this too, you typically would have a community in the town that was where the African-American folks or black folks, as they called them back then, mm-hmm. lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was up, up a hill, up Foley Hill. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom of Foley Hill was the high school. We're talking a couple of hundred yards, um, the community was from the high school. Uh, but those students, those uh, those students, those African-American students were not allowed to go to that high school. It was segregated and they had to ride a bus every day to Knoxville, 18 miles round trip wow. to, uh, to go to high school. Um, and so there was a, a, a point where this one woman, she had and the whole community kind of get together, but she had five kids. And not only did they have to ride a bus to Knoxville, they had to pay tuition for them to go to the school in Knoxville. And she said she couldn't afford it. So she got help from the ACLU to file a lawsuit uh, challenging the segregation of the, of the order. It made its way to uh, the federal court in Knoxville. Um, and I believe they lost uh, so they appealed it to the federal court in Cincinnati. And when it got to Cincinnati, um, the, the judge there said, I'm going to wait to rule on this because the Supreme Court is getting ready to hear a court, court, court case called Brown versus the Board of Education, mm-hmm. which is going to probably settle the, the, whether segregation is constitutional or not across the country. So once Brown uh, came back, and uh, segregation was uh, uh, was not considered legal, was unconstitutional. The judge immediately sent word back down to Knoxville to the federal judge in Knoxville. The federal judge in Knoxville said Clinton High School will integrate uh, beginning this fall, 1956. And um, so this is the story about the small town and the people in it. The reason they call it, we call it the Clinton 12 is because there were 12 students 12 African-American students who would be attending that school that fall. Um, 
uh, a school of about eight or nine hundred students. Right. Um, and so the town got ready for it. The school system got ready for it. And it kind of all came to a head that summer when a segregationist uh, named John Casper came into town and started stirring the pot, so to yep. speak. <laughs> and um, um, so by Labor Day weekend of that year, 1956, all kinds of uh, segregationists had come in from all over the country. Um, and there were riots on the streets. And uh, you remember, this is a small, small East Tennessee town. And so I told that story. I tell the story up through um, the rest of the year and all the things that happened. Uh, and then uh, 18 months after that fact, the actually the high school was bombed. Uh, wow. And has destroyed most of the high school, which is still an unsolved case to this very day. Um, <laughs> and um, uh, and from what I understand, when I made the film, it was still an open FBI investigation. Wow. But anyway, so it kind of tells the story and what happened to those Clinton 12 folks, uh, you know, as they some of them moved away um, and tells the story of, of some of the white students and what happened to them over the course of the years. So. It, it's, it was very powerful. It was a very powerful story. It was a forgotten moment in uh, African-American history, in an American history. Um, the, the, you know, we all, we all hear about the, the, the Little Rock Nine. Mm -hmm. uh, most people uh, know the story of the Little Rock Nine, you know, where the governor stood in the doorway of the high school saying, you're not going to integrate this. The, the reason they didn't hear about the Clinton 12 is because exactly the opposite happened. The governor sent in the National Guard to make sure that this happened in right. Clinton. Um, so, um, so it was a great, it was a great, powerful story. When I made the film, eleven of the Clinton Twelve were still living. Wow. Uh, I was able to interview eleven of them. Um, we had a premiere uh, on the fiftieth anniversary of the integration at the Ritz Theater in downtown Clinton, Tennessee. And we had the red carpet rolled out for the Clinton 12 to walk in downstairs because when they were growing up in Clinton, they were not allowed on the main floor. They had their own separate entrance where they had to go to the balcony. Right. So that was a very poignant moment in our history. Uh, and um, it was a, it was a wonderful it was a wonderful experience for me as a filmmaker uh, to be able to tell such an important story about people that were still with us. Yeah. And uh, and to tell their story, so uh, really it is available. Thank you for making that, by the way. Well, you know, it was it was, and, and I and I and I like I said, I did a lot of film festivals with it. I did a lot of speaking with it, and people um, people always said I'm going to write a book about it, entitled the book uh, "The Reluctant Activist," <laughs> because I you know I am not an activist filmmaker. Um, I'm a storyteller. That's what I've done my whole career. Um, but I didn't have, I, I would, I would say when I started, I didn't have a dog in that race. I really, I, I mean, I, I wasn't an activist to, to, for civil rights or anything like that. I wasn't an anti-activist of civil rights, but, uh, but I really didn't have a, a an activist feel to me. Um, but I'm a storyteller and that was my job. My job was to tell that story um, in a way that I thought would be engaging and effective and hopefully entertaining. And uh, people have, have responded really well to it. Um, 
like I said, it got picked up nationally on PBS and it showed there for a number of years. And um, if you Google now, you can probably find a copy of it online. I was able to get permission to put the film online during the pandemic last year because so many schools use it. And um, they, um, they, they, they were doing virtual classes. So, right. so people wow. can do that. But it was, a, like I said, it was a powerful film. It was a, it was a wonderful moment. Um, as far as filmmaking goes, that's probably going to be the thing that stands out for me as far as a legacy, if I should leave a legacy. Uh, the Clinton 12 is going to be one of the, the more important things that it's more, more, more important topics that I have tackled. And, and what a contribution to filmmaking and to society it was. And you heard it from the man himself. Uh, go out, Google it, find it, YouTube it, wherever you got to do. Go watch the Clinton 12. It's a great documentary. You, you also got James Earl Jones to narrate this. How did you do that? Uh, well, <laughs> local well, documentary. It, yeah, <laughs> documentarian. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the thing. Um, I was two months away from the premiere and I didn't have a narrator. Um, and I was literally losing sleep. And so I, um, I knew I wanted somebody like, like that. I wanted somebody with a recognizable voice. I wanted someone, I wanted an African-American who was about that age who could relate to these people. Um, and, so, so to all the, the all the to all the the folks the the African American students the the white students you know the whole town uh, that could tell the story effectively as a narrator, and at that point I had two choices. Um, I had worked for months to work with agents to try to find someone, and I just never could make it happen. And sort of my dream list was Morgan Freeman mm-hmm. or James Earl Jones. And Morgan Freeman had just won the Academy Award for the Penguin, for the March of the Penguins. So March of the Penguin, I, yeah. Yeah, I figured he was not available uh, for my budget. And <laughs> so I was able to go online to IMDB Pro and find out who the agent was for James Earl Jones. And Very the story goes... Uh-huh. advice right there without you realizing it. So there you go. Yeah. IMDB, you can't get it on IMDB, but if you pay your hundred bucks a year, you can get IMD pro and find out who their yep. agent is. Great. So, investment. so I did that. I s- called, uh, the people were very nice. I think they were in New York. Uh, they were very nice and said, send us a, send us a script, send us a proposal. And uh, I figured I emailed it on a Wednesday and figured that would be the end of it. I would never hear back <laughs> from them because I didn't have a lot of money. I had a little bit of money, but not much. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, on Thursday, about 24 hours later, I did the old trick of called them on the phone again. Just want to make sure you got my email. Mm-hmm. And they said, yes, we have. And we have forwarded this to Mr. Jones for him to look at. So Friday morning, about 10 o'clock, I got a call from the agent himself. I had talked to his assistant before. And uh, he said, uh, Mr. Jones uh, reached out. He says he's interested in doing the film, uh, narrating. Um, but here are some conditions. Uh, and there were a few little things. One was the money was not enough. Um, so I had to, you know, arrange to get a little more money budget. Um you had to do it in New York, um, had to provide him a car and you know, a couple of things like that. And uh, he's, he's available on Wednesday. This was Friday. Mm-hmm. And 
it needs to be a union contract. Okay. Now, yeah. I live in Tennessee. Okay. We're a right to work state. I've never had to deal with a union contract before in my life. Um, but the story goes that we agreed to it. Um, we, by, by eight o'clock on Friday night, we had all the contracts were faxed to each other. This is back when we faxed things mm-hmm. signed. And at six o'clock the next morning, I got on a plane. I flew to New York, um, and recorded him and was home by 11 o'clock that night. That's amazing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was an amazing, amazing experience. Um, and he was willing to do it at, at, at you know, I'm sh- his agent said much, much cheaper than he normally would do things for because he felt, you know, he, he, he liked the story. He liked the script. Uh, a friend always kids me because uh, I have on tape James Earl Jones saying, Mr. McDaniel, you write very poetically. <laughs> and um, so um, so it was a wonderful, wonderful experience and one I will I will never forget and one that I don't take for granted. Um, he was a wonderful man. He really was. Yeah, that's that's a great story. And, uh, and congrats and, on getting And him. just having having James Earl Jones attached to your film instantly gave my film credibility. Such gravitas, right? Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's I mean, that was as that was as probably as as important to getting it seen as anything I could do. Um, and that's a lesson for filmmakers. You know, if you have an opportunity to attach someone to your film who has instant name recognition and credibility, then, um, you know, that's something you should ser- seriously consider if you can. Right. Because people would listen to James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman just talk about anything. Oh, sure. <laughs> because Absolutely. Then was, so then you give a good story behind it, too. It's like, oh, that's 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 a winner. Um, yeah, ab- absolutely. Keith, you've been incredible. I've learned so much. You've been generous with your time. I just have a few more questions. And uh, sure. This is the 100 year anniversary of the Tulsa massacre. Mm-hmm. So what we call Black Wall Street. Is there a, a, it made me think, is there a story or you've got up your sleeve that, that, is there, a, is there another Clinton 12 that you're hiding somewhere under your hat that, uh, you know, maybe most people don't know about it, but it, but it's a story that needs to be told? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't. I mean, there there have been ideas that um, that I've had over the years of things that I wanted to tell the story of. Um, and there's and I've still got a few things I I don't know how many more documentaries I've got in me, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, I think there's probably another Clinton 12 out there someplace. Mm-hmm. One of the great stories that I've wanted to tell for years, and I may steal one of these days, is um, is the Freighterville coal mine disaster of 1902, mm-hmm. which took place in East, East Tennessee. And uh, I actually did a trailer, a little trailer for it a few years ago. You can Google that probably and find that online too. It's Freighterville. Um, but it was a terrible coal mining accident, um, and, uh, uh, that happened in, uh, up near Bryceville, up near Lake city, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was actually a play that was written about it, a musical play that was written about it a few years ago. But, but that's, that's something that I've, I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to tell that story. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly 
if I, if I never make another documentary, I think I'd be okay with that. Um, I think I do want to write. I've really enjoyed writing this book. Um, I, I, one thing that I am planning on, and I hope to be able to do this, is um, for the 20th anniversary of the Knoxville Film Festival, I would like to do a book that is a oral history. I write about half of it is going to be an, an oral history of, of the film festival. And then I want to invite people that have been a part of the film festival over the past 20 years to submit their their remembrances or their thoughts or their comments about the film festival and, and kind of come up with a collection, which is kind of a 20th anniversary anniversary right. edition, you know, of, of the film festival to celebrate that. So that's something that'll take me, you know, that's a couple of years away. So I'll probably be working on that. But uh, there's uh, lots look- of things that lots of things that I want to do. Um, I don't know how much longer I'll do the film festival. Um, mm. You know, I'm I'm and I don't know how much longer I'll work. You know, I'm in my almost almost mid 60s now. So uh <laughs> I can I can see retirement out there some at some point, um, and whether that means I I retire from my real job and continue to do the film festival or not, I don't really know. Or whether I find somebody that I can trust to turn it over and continue the the work that we've been doing, we'll just right. we'll just wait and see. I'm not I'm not to that point yet. Exactly, and look, I hope you take this as a as a compliment because this is the way I mean it. Uh, I hope you never retire. We need <laughs> we need uh, storytellers like you telling the the story and the history of the time of our lives, and we need the best storytellers to do it. And 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 you're one of them. Um, well, thank you. you. I, oh, I, I let, one more thing. Since you said that, I was I was really inspired a couple of weeks ago. You know, I'm in the process of watching the films that are submitted for this year for the film festival. Oh yes, to, yes. to select a couple of weeks ago. I watched this great documentary. It was a wonderful documentary. And once it was over with, I wanted to do a little research on the filmmaker and discovered that he was six, he was 75 years old. This documentary filmmaker is is 75 years old and still cranking out quality work. Um, So I was inspired by that. So I'm inspired by that. And it's, (laughs) it's, there's no age limit on creativity and and great storytelling. And that's proof Mm -hmm. positive. Um, I guess you're not able to say the name of the film yet. Nope, not yet. All but, right. But uh, I feel pretty. I feel pretty good that it will be. <laughs> it will be included in this year's film festival. It was. It was very good. All right. Uh, t- tell everybody where they can find you, Keith, on the internet or on social media, where they might be able to see some of your work. Yeah, we uh, uh, our our the film festival. The website is knoxfilmfest.com. Um. You know, it's knoxfilmfest.com. Most of the information is there. Uh, We also are on Facebook at Knoxville Film Festival. Um, You know, I'm a little of the old school that I've not embraced Instagram and Twitter as much as I probably should have. Um, But uh, I post everything. And you can find me personally, Keith McDaniel, um, on Facebook as well. Uh, cause when I post something about the film festival, I always post it both on our Knoxville film festival page and for, uh, Keith McDaniel, um, people can, you know, people, my email address is, is, is available and readily available. It's just Keith at Knox, Knoxville film Um, and, uh, 
So that's 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 how people can find me and reach out. Uh, um, I don't have fancy web pages for my for my for my films or anything like that. If anybody has a question, they can uh, they can email me or message me on Facebook, and I'd be happy to answer. Um, Perfect. So yeah, Perfect. It's, I'm just kind of I'm just kind of there. There it is, and I think people should do it and uh, go out find the Clinton Twelve amongst many many historical documentaries that that you've done and uh, we'll, we'll end on this uh, you once said there have been times I wish I did something else that was more stable or more secure what would you tell the 25 year old filmmaker in you if you had to you could talk to the 25 year old version of Keith McDaniel what would you tell them I would tell them um that you got to find a way you got to find a way to make a living and if you can find a way to make a living that feeds your soul then you'll never work a day in your life um that is a hard thing to do um very few people have the opportunity to do that but if you can find a way to make it happen, um, uh, then 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 that's that's ideal. I would also say, and something that I've tried to do over the years, is don't wait on someone else to give you an opportunity. Create your own opportunities. So don't wait on it because it'll never happen if you wait for somebody else. You have to do it yourself and create your own opportunities. And don't limit yourself to what you think you can or can't do because you have no idea what you can do um, until you try. Yep. Uh, like I said, I have uh, a 22-year-old that's in, in working on his master's, and I have a almost 21-year-old in college. And uh, if there's anything that I've been able to teach them is that there's nothing that they can't do if they really put their mind to it and pursue it. Um, it's kind of the legacy that I'm giving them that my parents gave me. So, uh, that's what I would say. Amen to that. And here's to hoping that your sons believe you when you say it the way you believed your parents when they said it, uh, Keith, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you so much, hopefully. And I'll talk to Nick about it. We'll see you in September and Great. for, for the festival and best of luck from here to that point. Uh, in all things that you do. Well, thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure being with you. Um, you know, I host a couple of podcasts, but I rarely get to be a guest. So this has been a real treat for me. So thank you so much. Anytime. Take care. All right. Talk soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www. Bonsai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative and the show will pop right up. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click contribute.
contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.